This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We made it to another Friday, and since it's noon, let's jump right into our weekly news recap. A Navy veteran from Lombard is free after being held captive in Afghanistan for more than two years. Two county state's attorneys in Illinois are suing over the so-called Safety Act. Seven weeks to the general election, and there's a critical shortage of poll workers and election judges. The Cook County clerk joining a national effort to recruit military veterans to fill the positions. Illinois State Senator Emil Jones III has been charged with bribery and lying to the FBI. We've had so much news this week, so here to help us make sense of it all is Dan Petrella, state government reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Great to have you back, Dan. Good to be here. Also with us is Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. Hey, Aaron. Hey, happy Friday. And Christian Farr, reporter for NBC5 Chicago. Welcome back, Christian. Thank you so much. I want to give a special shout out to the folks who are watching us right now break down the week's news live on WBEZ's Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also watch the live stream on Reset's Facebook page. All right, so we'll begin with statewide news today. Dan, Governor Pritzker's calling for the resignation of two state senators. Let's discuss Chicago Democrat Emil Jones III to start off. Remind us who he is and what he's being accused of. Sure. Emil Jones III is the son of the former Illinois Senate President Emil Jones Jr., um, who was uh, had, he resigned from the or retired from the legislature in 2009. Basically, handed the seat to his son when he retired. Um, through the nomination process. And um, Emil Jones III was charged earlier this week with uh, federal counts, including bribery and lying to the FBI. He was in court uh, by telephone just now and pleaded not guilty. Um, He is expected to potentially change his plea to guilty later on. Um, The charges involve him accepting allegedly a $5,000 bribe Mm -hmm. from an executive of a red light camera company to um, sort of put the brick on a piece of legislation that they didn't like that was moving forward in Springfield. Um, there was also a bribe involved for a second unnamed individual who was um, somehow involved in the situation. Interesting. Aaron, do you think that Emil Jones will resign from the Senate? I have no idea. Um, I mean, I think there's clearly pressure now um, to resign, but I'm I'm interested to see, you know, obviously, as Dan said, he pled I'm not guilty, but I'm interested to kind of see how this plays out. What do you think, Christian? Well, I'm just thinking about all of the aldermen who have also gone down in all of this. There seems to be this focus right now, at least at the federal level, to go after politicians, which didn't seem to happen when I first came here to Chicago about 16 years ago. Um, And so you're you're seeing some big names like, you know, Patrick Daly Thompson, um, you know, serving jail time. Um, and so uh, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if he actually is going to end up stepping down. Um, but, you know, uh, a lot of this corruption has been kind of seeping out right now. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see more names going to be coming out soon. Let's turn, Dan, to Democratic State Senator Michael Hastings of Southwest Suburban Frankfurt. What is he accused of? He um, this is a somewhat messier situation because he has not been charged with any wrongdoing. But there has been um Rumblings for a while now about some um, domestic abuse allegations made by his uh, wife, who he's in the process of going through a divorce with. He has said in court filings that she is conspiring with others to make these things up to hurt his political career. Um, More recently, um, it came to light that the state paid $100,000 to settle a lawsuit brought by his former chief of staff, who accused him of um, some harassment and intimidation, retaliation. Um, And then... uh, your station reported last week, I believe it was, that a lobbyist in energy or an environmental lobbyist down in Springfield came forward and said that he had been um, 
menacing toward her, yelling at her in meetings over legislation, pounding on the table, um, treating her in very unprofessional ways, um, and all of that. Those yeah. things came together in, in the governor calling for uh, Senator Hastings and Senator Jones, who I should note were both until recently members of the Senate Democratic leadership team uh, to to resign their Which seats. complicates things even more. Let's get an update on the governor's race. Christian, some community activists, they've been voicing outrage over uh, Republican Darren Bailey's ads. Yeah. yeah, this is the super PAC ads that you've probably seen on television, yep. um, which shows a lot of the Chicago violence um, from security camera footage um, edited all together. Uh, very grim. So yesterday there was a large group of community activists, which included Andrew Holmes, well-known uh, Father Michael Flager of St. Sabina was there. Um, Purpose Over Pain was there as well. And even those victims of, of violence were there, some who are portrayed in some of these commercials, very upset. They feel like they're being re-victimized because of these commercials, and they want Darren Bailey uh, to stop uh, supporting these commercials. It's through a super PAC, but yeah. um, he, you know, it's benefiting his campaign. And so they had that protest in front of the Hancock where Darren Bailey, a supporter, has provided him uh, a place to stay in Chicago. And they have encouraged him to go stay in places like Inglewood, Parkway Gardens. These are, are, are notorious places where we see uh, some of the violence and where uh, brown and, and black individuals who are poor, who are sometimes the victims of this violence, um, live. And uh, Darren Bailey said in response to that, talking to our political reporter, Marion Ahern, that um, he doesn't understand why they're being re-victimized, um, but he is willing to sit down with them. And he's even willing to take up some of those invitations to go to Englewood, to go to Parkway Gardens and to spend the night. That's what he said. Okay. That's what he told our Marion Ahern. <laughs> okay. um, and so we'll see if that indeed happens. Um, I'd love to you see know. that. Yeah. Dan, do you, you think that'll happen? Um <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, place any money on it. I think you know there, it's. We're in a really interesting time in the campaign right now, especially when it comes to all these issues of crime and um, the accusations that are they're flying back and forth. The misinformation and disinformation that's out there on these issues is pretty, uh, yeah. pretty intense. Speaking of this uh, November eighth election, Cook County Clerk Karen Yarbrough has concerns about how things are going to go on election day. We have a serious shortage of judges and poll workers. Now, the clerk's office manages elections in suburban Cook County, and we've seen our number of election judges shrink significantly in recent years. Over the last eight years, we've seen a reduction of about 40 percent. Forty percent is a big number, Erin. What do you think is behind this judge shortage? Yeah, well, as as the clerk said, um, this has kind of been playing out over the past few years. Specifically, um, there was the 2020 general election right at the beginning of the um, pandemic, um, when a lot of people who are usually election judges, seniors mainly, um, didn't show up or couldn't show up to be election judges because, you know, we didn't know anything about the virus then and they didn't want to compromise their health. Right. Um, so... It's kind of been there's been trouble getting election judges to kind of get back up to those previous levels um, now. And, you know, with less than two months to go, um, Karen Yarrow is is urging military veterans to kind of, you know, return to service um, and serve as election judges. Um, and that says, I think Cook County still needs more than like twenty five hundred people to adequately cover um you know, the polling places for election day. So that's that's a lot of judges. And, yeah. you know, if you don't have enough judges at a polling location, you know, 
then it's more work for the people there. And, you know, you run the potential risk of not being able to open if no one mm-hmm. is there. Um, so I think it's it's a pretty urgent um, call. And, and I think it's something that's happening not just in Cook County, but yeah. um, – you know, kind of across Elsewhere. the country. Well, yeah. my immediate thought was like, is this just a tight labor market or is something more going on? I, I don't know. I remember when the primaries were, were going on and, and uh, one of the stories we did is that some of these uh, polling places did not open up or it didn't open up until like noon mm-hmm. or one o'clock because they didn't have any judges to, um, you know, man those most places. And that wasn't just in Chicago. That was also in the suburbs as well. People went back to their typical polling places and found that they weren't open because they didn't have enough people to man those polling places. So, yeah, this is definitely a problem. And, uh, you know, it's it also uh, is connected to the virus as well. And, you know, places have like increased pay for election judges. So it, it doesn't seem like it's even a, a, a pay issue. Um, you know, you get paid, I think, like $200 a day in Cook County. But um, so, yeah, in, increasing that pay is not drawing you know, the amount of people who they need to serve um, as judges. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Chicago Tribune state government reporter Dan Petrella, Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line, and NBC5 Chicago reporter Christian Farr. A reminder that you can now watch the weekly news recap live on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. And you can leave us a comment or a question. Talk to us in that YouTube chat box, and I might just read your takes on these stories on the air. Now, three states' attorneys have filed lawsuits against Illinois' sweeping criminal justice overhaul. That's known as the Safety Act. It would make Illinois the first state to eliminate cash bail. And here is what McHenry County State's Attorney Patrick Keneally told WTTW. To many in law enforcement, this was a political ambush. Uh, You had legislatures who were sort of in league with a group of activists, many of whom just did not have a comprehensive or good understanding of what the criminal justice system was doing, who took a wish list and put it into legislation. And all of a sudden, at the 11th hour during lame duck session, they sprung this thing. They strong armed and excluded prosecutors, as well as police, as well as other people involved in the criminal justice system from any type of negotiations. They forced this thing through. um, And now we're left with the fallout, which is a bill that not only doesn't make sense, but is a clear and present danger to the public. So he's got a lot to say there, Aaron. This bill was passed back in February of 2021. So thoughts on why it's getting so much attention now? I think because we have an election coming up and it's an easy yeah. target. I think that's I see it heads we nodding were just in the room. talking before this how <laughs> like there's plenty of coverage if you google it. There's coverage from when when this passed. So it's not like this is a new uh, measure. It's not like it's, you know, being thrown on anyone. Um it's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. We, what are your thoughts Dan on on the fact that this is coming up and causing quite the stir, right? On social media and elsewhere. Yeah, um, I alluded to a little bit earlier the the disinformation um, that's being put out there by yeah. some of the same figures behind those super PAC commercials we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, it, it's hard not to see these lawsuits that have been filed as somewhat politically motivated because the law was passed a year and a half ago. We wrote stories at the time, others wrote stories at the time about some of the questions about how this was going to work to eliminate cash bail, which is the main thing that, that people have focused on. Um, and, you know, there were months and months for these lawsuits to be brought Um you know, I understand uh, one of the state's attorneys, I think it was Mr. Keneally, actually said, you know, he, they, he was waiting for some fixes maybe that never came. Mm-hmm. But the legislature adjourned in April this year uh, before the June primary, and they haven't been meeting since then. So there's been ample time to file a lawsuit not 
less than two months before voters go to the polls. So besides ending cash bail, Dan, give us a summary, if you will, of what else is included in this 764-page bill. It, it's, it is really massive. There's um, provisions that make it easier for citizens to file complaints against the police, um, not having to sign a, a sworn affidavit with your name on it. Um, there's another provision that will require every police officer in the state of Illinois to wear a body camera by 2025. Um, there are uh, Those are some of the, the, the top-level ones. It's a wide-ranging yeah. overhaul of the way we deal with criminal justice. And I think, rightly so, the, the elimination of cash bail gets a lot of attention because it is the most substantial change to the way criminal justice operates. What do you think about that bad rap cash bail is getting, the elimination of it? I'm getting a ton of text messages about it. Me too, from family, elsewhere. Yeah, and and again, uh, as Dan and Aaron even said, it's a lot of misinformation that is out there. I mean, um, I'm working on a story with the public defender's office, and and they have actually come to me and said, hey, could you please do something more, excuse me, more, because – there's a lot of misinformation with these commercials, and if you go on social media, you'll see a lot of graphics that have been made that really don't spell out exactly everything that Dan has so mm-hmm. eloquently said here. And and like he said, there's been stories on this. I mean, you just type it into Google, and you'll see that they go back um, to yeah. 2021, and people are just seeing these Super PAC commercials. They're paying attention to what's being sent out on social media and not really digging into those credible news sources where mm-hmm. you can truly find out what this is all about. Well, before we take a pause, Christian, I want to jump to a story you reported on this week. You were in West Suburban Lombard covering the uh, man who's finally been released after spending more than two years in Taliban yeah. hostage. Yeah, Mark uh, Mark Frerichs. Um, he's a contractor. Uh, Navy veteran. Uh, they've been trying to get him out for some time now. Um, his sister lives in Lombard, and uh, the whole block has really been supporting him and trying uh, to get him out. So Senator Dick Durbin and also uh, Senator uh, Tammy Duckworth have been working on this. Tammy Duckworth, as we know, a uh, military veteran who was injured mm-hmm. uh, fighting uh, the war, and um, she took this as a as as a personal. Um, mission to get him out. So he was traded for a uh, drug lord um, who has been in U.S. custody for more than 15 years. Uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth says he's very ill and um, and has been receiving medical care. And so now he can get that medical care um, from the Taliban by handing him over. And in return, Mark Frerichs gets to wow. to come home. We're not certain of his health condition. Um, and he's he's in, he's in Germany? As far as I know, he's in Germany on a military base. That's usually where people go. And he's being treated there. And when he's ready to come he home, can come back. he will come home. That's what uh, Senator Duckworth uh, told us. But she's very happy, worked very hard with the Biden administration, also had been working with the Trump administration to make this happen. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, it's our weekly news recap where we make sense of the week's top local and state stories. Now, before the break, we talked about state politics and the November election. There's a lot more to get to. A special judge granted a preliminary injunction on Indiana's new abortion law. Tonight, Chicago taxpayers are on the hook for $25 million to settle lawsuits against Chicago police. The city's council finance committee approved the payouts over three lawsuits accusing officers of misconduct. Timmy Knudsen will replace former Alderman Michelle Smith, who stepped down last month. He was just sworn in to represent the North Side Ward. Our panel, Chicago Tribune state government reporter Dan Petrella, Aaron Hegarty of City Hall reporter for The Daily Line, and NBC5 Chicago reporter Christian Farr. We are still live right now on Facebook and YouTube for those of you who prefer to watch.
All right, residents of Lincoln Park, Old Town, and the Gold Coast, they've got a new alderman. Aaron, tell us all about Timmy Knudsen. They do. So um, on Monday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that Timmy Knudsen, uh, I guess now former head of the Zoning Board of Appeals, um, would be the new 43rd Ward alderman. Um, he replaces Michelle Smith, who announced right after the July City Council meeting that she would be retiring, and she left um, last month. So Knudsen is one of 17 people who applied um, for this job. It was and a I pretty believe, quick replacement. Um yeah, at, I don't know. I was on the edge of my seat, so it seemed like it took forever. <laughs> I'm like, that was super fast. You're like, right. no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I believe with this swearing in, he's the youngest member of the city council, um, taking the place of um, Alderman uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who I think is older than him by about a, a year, potentially. Um, he's the seventh member of the city council's LGBTQ caucus, um, and he noted um, a few times on Wednesday that he is also the first openly gay mayor, openly gay city council person of the 43rd Ward. Um, he said he wants to use his experiences as a member of the LGBTQ community to, you know, affect change, relate to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also uh, a lawyer. And he said, you know, he's worked as a grassroots organizer in the 43rd Ward. Um, Do you have any sense as to why the mayor picked him? Um, I mean, he was, you know, the head of the Zoning Board of Appeals. It kind of comes with, you know, he's not unknown. Yeah. Um, I think he looks like a good choice. Um, <laughs> on paper? Know, yeah, on paper. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, on Wednesday, he has a, quote, you know, proven track record of being, of bringing the private sector results into the public sector, into the public service. Um and it, it was kind of funny during his swearing in, you know, aldermen were congratulating him and calling him Tim. Um, and he was very clear that his name is Timmy, not Tim. Oh, okay. Um, you know, some aldermen make a note. joke that... Reporters make notes. <laughs> I'm making notes right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he was also assigned to his city council committees, which are pretty big, powerful committees since he's just replacing um, alderman Michelle Smith. And some aldermen had some... Uh, kind of qualms with that. Some aldermen who were elected in 2019 who are on kind of more low uh, committees, like this, you know, special events committee. Yeah. Um, they said, you know, you're bringing him in and he gets to be on public safety. He gets to make decisions on the budget. Um, maybe mm. you sh- should reconsider how these committees are signed. So I thought that was um, kind interesting. of interesting. And there's going to be an election in February for this ward, for the 40, 43rd ward. After this mayoral appointment, Dan, do you think that it's likely that Knudsen will win? Um, you know, there's always the, the advantage of being the incumbent. Your name is in the news for a few months before voters really start turning their attention to those yeah. elections. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's always a little bit of an, an inherent advantage. I think, you know, unless some he screws it up somehow over the next few yeah. months, he's probably got a, a pretty good shot. Yeah, for sure. And as aldermen are set to receive near 10% salary increases next year, there's a few that are now calling for limiting their pay. Christian, can you imagine asking for a limit on your salary? <laughs> <laughs> My boss could be listening, so I just want to be careful with that. Dan? Um, <laughs> um, no. I'll be honest. No, I cannot. The answer is um, no's all around. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. I mean, the issue of public official never. pay is just always No, limit. <laughs> it's not a more vocabulary. So. <laughs> right. Why are these aldermen doing this, Aaron? Make it make sense. Well, you know, some... I think a lot of aldermen would agree with both of you that they don't want to 
set a limit on on their salary or how much you know how big of a raise they can get each year. And that's why so on Wednesday there were three proposals introduced relating to aldermanic pay and and pay raises. Um, Alderman Greg Mitchell sent two of those measures to the Rules Committee, essentially saying, we're not going to discuss these or vote on these ever or for a long time. Um, One of them was from Alderman uh, Andre Vasquez, who wants to cap um, aldermanic pay increases at 5% um, each year. So right now they're tied to CPI, which is why you see this nearly 10% raise. And one issue that Vasquez brought up is right now it's take it or leave it. You either take this massive pay increase, which, you know, right before an election year doesn't look great, um, or you don't take a raise at all. He wants something kind of in between or mm. to kind of put, yeah, put a cap on on pay increases. Um, another proposal would, from Alderman Raymond Lopez, who is also running for mayor, um, it would reset aldermanic salaries at 120000 and uh, would provide a 3% pay raise every four years. So that's also how long aldermanic terms are. Okay. Um, I, I don't envision anyone Voting. latching on to that proposal. <laughs> yeah, that one seems highly <laughs> unlikely. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line, NBC5 Chicago reporter Christian Farr, and Dan Petrella, Uh, state government reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Reminder, if you're watching us online right now on the WBEZ YouTube page, you can chat with us in the chat box. I might just read your comment or question on the air. Like Angela, who's on YouTube right now, she asks, what do aldermen make now? It's a range. So not all aldermen make the same amount currently, um, specifically because you see that aldermen can Take this, take their annual pay increase or decline it. So there were, I, I think, seventeen who declined um, the upcoming pay increase. Um, so right now it's between a little over one hundred twenty thousand dollars and more than one hundred forty-two thousand dollars. So, I mean, it, it doesn't range that widely, but um, yeah, not not everyone makes the same. The and some same. of that is by their own choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticking with you for a bit, Aaron. City Council also approved three police misconduct settlements this week. What is that going to cost taxpayers? So that's going to cost about uh, $25 million for these settlements um, alone. The largest was $15 million, which was awarded for the family of Guadalupe Franco Martinez. Um, she was killed in 2020 when a Chicago police uh, squad car crashed into her vehicle near Ashland and Irving Park. Mm. Um, that police vehicle was involved in a high-speed chase, um, and it It's just kind of tragic, you know, hearing the family that she left behind and, you know, police were in pursuit of a person who was wanted for crimes committed, I believe, in the suburbs. Um, When the car hit Martinez's um, car, it it burst into flames and she had to be um, extricated. Um, The lawsuit was brought by her family, um, who alleges that police were in the chase, were acting um, under willful and wanton conduct while driving at the high high rates of speed. Yeah. Um, one, uh, nine million for another one? Yeah, nine million for another one. That was a wrongful conviction, wrongful murder conviction of Patrick Prince. And then probably part of an image that's going to be ingrained in my head for quite some time was a uh, $900,000 payment to settle the lawsuit brought by Dwayne Rowlett, who was seriously wounded in 2017 um, after Chicago police shot him. Um, as they alleged he resisted arrest and that 
he had a gun. He didn't have a gun, but he had at least one knife with him. And mm. because of that, um, uh, so this led Alderman Nick Spasato to bring with him to S- City Hall on City Council floor an example of a knife approximately the same size that Rowlett allegedly had. And so we had uh, an alderman on Wednesday holding a, a knife on City Council floor uh, and that trying is the to visual that convince you know. his oh boy. colleagues to vote against this settlement. So, so yeah, this is a lot of money for taxpayers, um, $25 million for just you yeah. know something that could have been potentially prevented and, you know, aldermen trying to argue against uh, these settlements. Before I take you out the hot seat for a sec, uh, City Council also approved a measure to protect abortion access. What are the details there? Um, so this would protect largely people who are coming from out of state for abortion access and gender affirming care. Um, I think, you know, Alderman and and the mayor wanted this to be enshrined in um, specific language, um, especially as you see, you know, neighboring states are people from neighboring states have to come to Chicago and, and Illinois for for this care. So they want to ensure that um you know, people can come here and get the care they need and mm-hmm. return to um, their homes and not be I don't know, ratted out or, or yeah. punished for, for coming here. Well, speaking of neighboring states, Christian, a, a judge yesterday blocked Indiana's week-old abortion law. So that didn't last very long. What's the latest there? No, it did not. That was a judge uh, in, um, in the Indianapolis area who um, he blocked it uh, because there had been clinics um, that had come with a lawsuit to stop this from happening. And so a week ago, we know that it went into effect, and a lot of these clinics, I uh, believe it's about seven of them, uh, very concerned. They shut down operations, actually, even I think believe prior to that. One doctor we talked to was a Katie uh, McHugh, who is from Indiana. Uh, she uh, believes in safe abortions, had her own abortion clinic, and was planning to pack up and leave uh, Indiana hmm. um, and just uh, have a small practice in um, the Indiana area and was uh, thinking of possibly even moving her whole entire family. Um, you know, she's she's pl- pleased with this. Um, I didn't get the chance to speak with her after this ban was lifted, mm-hmm. um, but it was reported that, um, you know, people are getting the word that abortion is now legal again and people are ready to get their health care that they deserve and that they desire. And, you know, her big thing was she felt that her daughter was losing rights um, when yeah. that ban went into effect. And that ban went very quickly. I mean, that was a, a, it was a special session that came in, and within two weeks they had put this in place. Um, and so there was a lot of concern. Planned Parenthood had, had uh, put this lawsuit um, ahead, and, and other clinics had latched onto it as well. And so they're pleased right now, but we have to wait and see what's going to happen. I mean, it's just lifted right now, but there's, you know, still more hearings to come, I believe, mm-hmm. in October that, you know, could lead to this coming back. So it's going to be a fight. And this is a good sign, right? It's a good sign. But even the, um, you know, um, anti-abortion people were uh, not even happy with the ban that's in place. Um, to the point that Aaron was bringing up, they don't want people going to other states to get abortions. They want to be able to rat those people out as well. So they want a 100% abortion ban. And the one in Indiana was probably somewhere around 98%, oh, I see. you know, because you could still leave the state and get an abortion. And then there's also, you know, other limits uh, and other exclusions for people who can get abortions. So they want an, a 100%. So not everybody's happy with this. Um, but um, probably those anti-abortionists who I haven't been able to speak to yet since this ban's been lifted, probably really, really upset now 
um, because those um, abortions can resume. Do you think that we're going to be hearing more about abortion statewide, Dan, leading up to the uh, election in November? Absolutely. I think that is um, what Democrats have identified as one of the top winning issues for them with voters in November, especially with um, all that's swirling around on crime and the new issues of corruption that they Mm -hmm. have to deal with. Um, You know, you look to the referendum that happened in Kansas in the primary earlier this summer where voters in a pretty deep red conservative state rejected an amendment to the state constitution that would have allowed lawmakers to enact an abortion ban. You look at some of the other um, special elections like the one in Alaska and New York that have taken place where where, um, pro-abortion rights candidates have performed much better than people expected. Um, I think this is really a very winning issue. Even if we go back to um, Senator Hastings, who we discussed earlier, and yeah. his, his response to um, Governor Pritzker calling for his resignation yesterday was, you know, it's up to the voters to decide my fate and they should elect, you know, me, a longtime, you know, Army veteran, a longtime senator and somebody who was going to defend a woman's right to choose. So yeah. you can just see, um, you know, one of the things I'm watching to see is whether you mentioned the special session in Indiana, whether Illinois ever gets around to uh, having the special That's session right, that yeah. they said they were going to have back on the day that the decision came down. Almost from forgot Court. about yes. that. Hmm. Um, I think they're hoping that people will have forgotten that they said that was going to happen. Yeah. You know what? Uh, the police misconduct settlements that we were just talking about a moment ago, Aaron, we got a question on YouTube from Sarah Berger. She says, why can't that lawsuit money come from police pensions? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's a question. question. I mean, <laughs> That's a great question. But that twenty-five say, million dollars, she says, could help a lot of communities. Yeah, it could. Good points. Yeah. I will. I will say, Alderman. Uh, I think I don't know if I mentioned this. Jason Irvin, um, during committee discussion, kind of asked, like, when are officers going to be held liable for instances like this where they are, you know, traveling at high rates of speed on in police chases? Um, that question was kind of unanswered and you know the city said we're looking into this but um that you know that is a question should officers be held liable for um yeah it's a good thought that's actually interesting if i may interject it goes back to the safety act earlier because one of the things that they were talking about while that was being debated in the legislature was um eliminating something called qualified immunity which protects Mm -hmm. police officers from being the target individually of civil lawsuits yeah and opponents of the bill managed to get that taken out before it was passed. So um, that just goes to show that there was some negotiation, there was some give and take on that bill, despite what um, what the critics are saying now. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Now, before the break, we took a deep dive into what's been happening at City Council, but we still have more to get to. And we are still live right now on YouTube for those who prefer to watch. And we're still taking your questions and your comments in that chat box. So, Aaron, I'm going to start with you. Another 74 migrants arrived in Chicago from Texas on Wednesday. What is the latest on this crisis? Yeah, so this is just kind of busloads of people just keep showing up. I mean, where know, are we at? Chicago. We're over, what, seven, eight hundred now? I think we're pretty close to a thousand uh, oh, wow. people who have been um, sent here. And it's just, yeah, this is the same thing that's been happening for the past few weeks where Texas Governor Greg Abbott um, puts migrants, I, I believe they're mostly Venezuelan, um, on on buses and sends them to Chicago and says, you're a sanctuary city, now you deal with this. Um, and, you know, city, state, and, and even uh, federal leaders have said that Abbott is using these people as political pawns and, and treating them like cargo, um, though 
you know, organizations here do seem to be working really hard to welcome these mm-hmm. um, these immigrants and and trying to give them temporary housing and and resources. Um, you know, and, and some are being um, temporarily housed uh, in the suburbs as the city doesn't have enough room. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I haven't talked to any, um, any of the people who have come here from Texas myself, yeah. but, um, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what they're going through and it, yeah. it seems like, I, you know, everyone's willing to help, but. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, here on Reset, we've had, uh, some of the organizations on, we've talked to them about what it's been like getting down there to the, you know, the Greyhound station and, and welcoming these folks. And they just talk about how tired they are when they get off the bus. Mm-hmm. They're tired. A lot of them are sick. A lot of them have swollen legs. Um, we're talking families here, right? So it's you know men, women, child uh, in this place that a lot of them don't know. <laughs> they have no connections here, um, and they're just hoping you know for a place to stay. Yeah, and you're just dropping them off. I mean, I've got literally a city hall mayor's office source who lets me know when these buses sometimes come in, and and they're just you know they're surprised by it. And um, but luckily there's an infrastructure that's kind of working to help um, all these migrants out, but um, it mm-hmm. just, just to drop people on a doorstep. I mean, you saw what they did in Martha's Vineyard, you know, with right. the census. I mean, it's and just, outside the, it's shocking. Outside the vice president's home. Right, right, right outside the vice president's home. So it's just a shocking thing that's going on, uh, that you're turning these people into political pawns, essentially, is what you're doing. Totally. The uh, union movement continued to gain momentum in Chicago this week. I want to listen to a clip here of Christy McGuire, who's an adjunct faculty member at the uh, School of the Art Institute. More than 600 of us are forming our union with Art Institute of Chicago Workers United, what we call ACWU, part of AFSCME, building on the incredible work of our staff colleagues at the school and the museum. Christian, unionization efforts seem to be growing across the country. Yeah, I mean, this is a non-tenured faculty calling on this union, as you just heard right there. 600 adjunct professors and lecturers at the school. They signed that union authorization cards, uh, and members of faculty organizing committee said Wednesday in a letter addressed to the school's uh, president. Um, and they're really pushing for this. You know, they yeah. you know want you know fair labor. Uh, they want protections. Uh, you know, things of that nature. They're teaching these classes. They have an expertise and they want to be treated fairly. So they had that big rally um, on Wednesday. But yeah, there there is a big movement in this country that's going on and they've, you know, have support, but we'll have to see what's going to happen. Were you at the rally? I was not at the rally. I've been at plenty of rallies this week. This wasn't (laughs) one of them. (laughs) You've been very busy this week. (laughs) Um, Well, right up the street from the Art Institute on Michigan Avenue, Trump Tower. That was also in the news. And it was included in the New York Attorney General's fraud lawsuit against Trump and his kids. So, Dan, what's the former president accused of doing So the, the Trump Tower, which is um, right across the street from where we used to live at the, at the Tribune, um, it uh, is an example in the lawsuit of how Trump manipulated, allegedly, the values of his properties for, um, on the one side, inflating them or using their real values to get loans. And then when it came to tax time... Um, reporting that they were essentially worthless so that he didn't have to pay taxes on them. Um, the problem is that he left uh, the Trump Tower here in Chicago off of some financial disclosures um, to sort of allegedly hide their value um, from from regulators, from, from banks that he was asking for loans, things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it was just uh, one example, I think, in the lawsuit of a pattern of how they've allegedly manipulated the values of these properties to um, to their benefit. 
I can't believe how much I'm still hearing <laughs> Donald Trump's name. And as we sit in the studio right now and I look up at the television, what's on CNN right now, I'm seeing his name at the bottom of the screen. Um, over to Chicago's west side, Christian, an explosion at an Austin apartment building injured eight people. What happened? Do we know yet? No, we don't know. We're still trying to figure out exactly. And when you look at the building, um, a majority of it below is intact. So yeah, something and imploded it just shattered inside. at the top. Yeah, blew out the windows. I mean, you could see um, shards that are kind of stuck into the building across the street. Um, there was a letter carrier. He wasn't delivering mail. He actually lives in that building. Um, he was injured. Shabron Robinson was injured in that blast. And um, according to the union president for letter carriers, um, he said that uh, he's in pretty bad shape. Um, oh he's got burns over a majority of his body. Um, And then uh, residents were allowed to go back into the building uh, the day after just for 30 minutes to grab a few things. But, um, you know, what's next for them? Because they can't go. There are certain buildings they just can't go back into. They're not structurally sound or safe. And so now they've got to find a new place to live. And they don't have anything because all of their items are inside of that. So where are they now? They're just kind of staying with. So down some are staying with friends and family down the street. There's Circle Urban Ministries. That is helping them out. Um, the landlord is also providing them um, with uh, housing as well, in some cases permanent, in some cases temporary. So there is an effort to help these people. But again, if you've collected things, we all have. We have homes. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine your home being you oh my know, decimated. I was and, just going to ask these two. I mean, yeah. did you see images of, of this explosion? Yeah, it's I, can't, I can't imagine it what that experience is like and that's one of my biggest fears is like waking up to a fire let alone an explosion that's jarring i have that same fear too aaron (laughs) yeah just traumatic i think we all have that same fear (laughs) (laughs) i think that's natural i think it's safe to say (laughs) for sure this is reset i'm sasha ann simons we are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with chicago tribune state government reporter dan petrella aaron hegarty who's a city hall reporter for the daily line and nbc5 chicago reporter christian farr police shut down traffic in downtown chicago over last weekend Blocking cars that were celebrating Mexican Independence Day from entering part of downtown. What did the city and police say was behind that decision, Aaron? Yeah, so this was from like, it. you know, I, I wasn't following this as it was happening. But looking back, I think it was from like 11 p.m. Saturday to like 2.30 a.m. Sunday. So it wasn't even for that long. And I think there were some like unintended consequences, as there always are, with, you know, shutting down the downtown um, where people maybe we're stuck in downtown then you don't want people downtown but you're also kind of trapping people downtown um and this was after you know they said there was the the kind of flooding of downtown to celebrate mexican independence day friday night um and then they said police said you know they responded to a couple shootings and and a carjacking downtown and so they made the announcement that they were gonna um you know do the shutdown and and i think it's not just like downtown as we think about it it's i read that it extended all the way south to like 18th street so um i I don't know i'd yeah i mean i definitely was i was downtown a little bit on on friday and i was kind of caught in the middle of of the excitement the the horn honking and the the flags waving and i was like this is great got home later on and saw what else had occurred yeah and i don't know how you measure the effectiveness of shutting down the downtown like was it effective was it not i well, the police just didn't seem like they were doing much. They mm-hmm. just were just on the side. I just every SUV I saw was just kind of 
parked on the sides. I'm like, okay, well, I guess you're just taking part in the festivities then or just spectating. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's it's a very unpopular move that the mayor has kind of mm-hmm. pulled multiple times before. Multiple times. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, going back to the, the um, protests and some yep. of the problems that spun out of those back in 2020. Yeah. It was tough to navigate our, trying to cover that. I mean, we didn't know what exits we could use and, to get around. So going back to our Austin story, the explosion, it looks like the Chicago Tribune uh, is reporting that one person has died. Wow. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't this be surprised. Is, this is breaking, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's it, 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 if you, you know, you have to go out there and really the see fire. it. You can just kind of see the roof was just, Goodness. you know, almost completely blown off. Um, and so you could see the workers in there. It's just unbelievable. Wow. I want to move to a very different story. Kind of also a, a sad note here. This is uh, over in North Suburban Evanston, Christian. Police were investigating a body that was found at the local high school. Yeah, my neck of the woods, actually. Um, uh, my kids go to, to school in Edmondson Public School District. Mm. Um, this is a completely separate school district. But, yes, they uh, on Tuesday, um, September 20th, uh, they found um, an adult woman, a uh, 63-year-old woman's body um, at the school. They determined that she uh, was not um, connected to the school in any way. And they have ruled it uh, a suicide. But, of course, that brings up a lot of concern. You know, what's going on? Why did it happen on campus? And so they were just she trying was on to the allay field, concerns. She was correct? on the field. Yes, she was on the field. So just, you know, trying to allay concerns. And they actually, um, I believe, had put out uh, on their website uh, that we recognize that anytime there's a police investigation on the ETHS campus, it may cause strong reaction. We're to support our student staff. Students may also reach out to their social worker if they express distress um, or desire uh, support. And this is very important because there was uh, an incident uh, months ago where a gun uh, was found inside of the school. There were some kids with a gun. The same school. The same school, ETHS, and it caused a lockdown. You know, parents rushed to the school. The kids are all locked inside, and, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Mm. Eventually they let those uh, kids out. No one was injured. Um, These kids had been in the bathroom playing around with a gun. Luckily no one was hurt. Um, and I'm not certain if charges came from that, but you know, anytime this, you know, something with a school with this magnitude, you know, there's definitely concern. I mean, just as a CPS parent, I'm already just nervous, just a a parent period, just in these times, I'm just nervous about, you know, my kids going out to school every day, much less having specific incidents happening on their campus that I could point to that are just going to fuel the, you know, the fears within me. Same thing here. I mean, my kid's school is right around the corner from From UTHS. And her school was on a soft lockdown when all this happens. So, you know. That's sad. Um, I want to check on our YouTubers and see what what they're saying. It looks like there's still a lot of chatter right now about the Mexican Independence Day uh, parade and celebrations. Sarah Berger loves seeing the Mexican flags flying for their independence. Uh, Larkin Johnson says about this parade, how is it legal for them to shut down that large of an area on such short notice? I, I, it, I don't know. I mean, I, they, they did it. I, I'd never seen them. I mean, I've been here for protests and they never shut the city down. But yeah. when the when the you know, the the George Floyd happened, that's when you really started to see, you know, them bringing the, the big, you know, salt trucks out and blocking exits. And so it just became very difficult to get in and out of the city. Yeah. 
Shamrock Bloom says, let them have a parade. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting. It's fun. People it's fun. are... Let them celebrate. celebrate. Yeah. I mean, they were celebrating. I saw them. I worked Sunday and I saw cars driving around nice. uh, Sunday afternoon. So it's great to see it. So we're starting to wrap up the recap. I'm wondering what stories really stuck out to you folks this week. Maybe something that surprised you, something that you thought was underreported. Uh, start with you, Dan. Um I might put in actually a shameless plug for a project that a couple of my colleagues launched this week. Go right ahead. Um, I listened to the first episode of the Tylenol Murders podcast that my colleagues uh, Christy Gutowski and Stacey St. Clair have been working on for a while now. Last night while I was uh, loading the dishwasher and I was hooked. Um, you know, this was an incident that happened in the suburbs where I'm from originally, just a couple of years before I was born. Um, and I'm really uh, looking forward to finding out what they've uncovered in this work that they've been doing. I think for about a year now. Nice, nice. What about you, Aaron? Um, I've listened to both episodes of that podcast, <laughs> and I am ready for Are the next one. I'm good. a fan. Good, good. Um, so this reporting from Cranes that um, the mayor's uh, Invest Southwest program is is largely just something that's been envisioned, um, where not not one project in that's in this Invest Southwest program. Um, has had construction start in the past three years. Um, you know what? That is right. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because it's something that the mayor always points to. Um, this is her, like, banner program. Um, Absolutely. And sure, there's a pandemic, but um, that's something that really stuck with we me. We need movement. <laughs> yeah. We need action. What about you, Christian? Um, you know, at NBC Chicago, we are profiling a lot of people during Hispanic Heritage Month. So just to go off a little bit from all the major news stories that are going on, I had the opportunity to do one of those stories about a young woman who's a second-year medical student, uh, UIC's first DACA medical student, and uh, she's had a lot of uphill battles. She's a product of um, the community colleges here in the state of Illinois. Her name is Estefania Perez Luna. Um, she's an amazing woman who received an award um, just uh, oh, several weeks ago, um, and she's just a story of inspiration. Her, I think her parents have no more than a fifth-grade education, probably even lower than that, um, but she was able to get through her undergrad and is now in medical school, made it through her first year in medical oh, school, is now working on her second year, and she wants to be an advocate. She's an advocate right now at Community Health, which is a clinic that's been around for more than four decades, and she uh, holds classes on the weekends where she she tells um, people about diabetes and preventative health care. So it's just a, a fantastic story. Every once in a while we get to do those, but yeah. you got to do the regular news as Love well. Love that. Mm-hmm. That is NBC's Christian, NBC 5's Christian Farr, the Chicago Tribune's Dan Petrella, and the Daily Line's Aaron Hegarty. Thank you all so much for joining. Have a great weekend. You, too. you as well. You too. Thanks.